0: Welcome to another episode of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and this podcast is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Centralia, Washington. During each episode, you will hear the sermons, liturgy, discussions, and interviews from the various weekly gatherings here at Christ Covenant Church. If you would like to find out more, please visit us online at ChristCovenantCentralia.com. Please enjoy the following audio. Well, let us rise and worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also to you from Psalm 25. Show me thy ways, O Lord. Teach me thy paths. Lead me in thy truth and teach me. For thou art the God of my salvation. On thee do I wait all the day. He shall subdue the people under us. And the nations under our feet. Remember, O Lord, thy tender mercies and thy loving kindnesses, for they have been ever of old. Remember not the sins of my youth nor my transgressions. According to thy mercy, remember thou me for thy goodness sake, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore will he teach sinners in the way. The meek will he guide in judgment, and the meek will he teach his way. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth unto such as keep his covenant. So lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let's pray together. Deliver us, O God, from all our miseries, because we lift up our souls unto thee. Remember not, we pray, the offenses of our youth and our former ignorance, And if we have through negligence offended thee, do thou of thy clemency pardon us. Wherefore we say, glory be to the Father, who is gracious and righteous. Glory be to the Son, the way in whom sinners are taught. Glory be to the Holy Ghost, the secret of the Lord. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. And amen. Amen. Will we continue to work our way through the Westminster... Shorter Catechism, question four, and we are still camped out at uh, question four, talking about the one divine essence. So let us uh, read this together, and then we will uh, look at the divine name goodness. So this is in your bulletin on page five. Westminster Shorter Catechism, question four, asks, what is God? Answer. God is the Spirit, infinite, eternal, and eternal. Good. So what does it mean to say that God is goodness or God is good? It seems like one of the most basic things that uh, many people, even uh, who are not Christians, can say. What does it mean to say that? In Luke chapter 18, a rich young ruler says to Jesus, "'Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life?' And Jesus says back to him, "'Why do you call me good?' No one is good except God alone. Here, Jesus makes a crucial distinction between two kinds of goodness. There is essential and absolute goodness, and this belongs exclusively to God. And then there is relative goodness, or goodness by participation. And it is in this sense that someone might be called a good teacher or a good person without themselves being divine. Jesus, of course, is both the good God and the preeminently good teacher, but that truth was lost on the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler loved the good things of earth, wealth and its comforts, more than the God who gives those things their goodness. For something to be called good signifies that it is desirable, and man only ever desires that which he thinks is good for him. However, because of sin, this desire for the good is often disordered, confused, and out of touch with reality. This is how the rich young ruler could stare essential and absolute goodness in the face of the Lord Jesus, but then choose money instead. Sin has blinded us to what is actually good for us. Sin blinds us to God. The good news of the gospel is that in Jesus Christ, The deepest longings and desires of our hearts is satisfied. In Christ, God gives us himself. God gives us the very goodness and love we have been searching for in all the wrong places. As St. Augustine famously said in his confessions, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. To say that God is good is to say that he alone is what can make us happy. For God alone is that supreme goodness, supreme perfection and beauty that in our heart of hearts all men desire. God is indeed very good. To contemplate these things should remind us of our need to confess our sins. So as you are able, let us kneel before the Lord. Father, we confess all of these sins to you in Jesus' name and amen. amen. Let us rise for the assurance of God's pardon. The enemies of God are brought down and fallen. But we are risen and stand upright. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is God's mercy towards them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Saints of Christ's covenant church, because you have confessed your sins, holding nothing back, it is my joy to announce to you that your sins are forgiven through Christ. Be to God. Our sermon text this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, verses 7 to 19. These are the words of God. But Jesus withdrew himself with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Idumea and from beyond Jordan. And they about Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude when they had heard what great things he did, came unto him. And he spake to his disciples that a small ship should wait on him because of the multitude, lest they should throng him. For he had healed many insomuch that they pressed upon him for to touch him, as many as had plagues. And unclean spirits, when they saw him, fell down before him and cried, saying, Thou art the Son of God. And he straightly charged them that they should not make him known. And he goeth up into a mountain, And calleth unto him whom he would. And they came unto him. And he ordained twelve that they should be with him, and that he might send them forth to preach, and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out devils. And Simon he surnamed Peter, and James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, and he surnamed them Boanerges, which is the sons of thunder. And Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot, which also betrayed him. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for giving us this gospel to teach us who you are, and to show us what it means to be a disciple of your Son, our Lord Jesus. We ask for your Holy Spirit now in full measure as we consider divine truth, for we ask this all in Jesus' name, and amen. Amen. Well, Mark chapter 3, verse 7, the beginning of our text, um, is the beginning of a new section in Mark's gospel. And this brings us to uh, really the second phase in uh, Jesus' ministry in Galilee. Uh, The way that most uh, commentators outline the book, so you're trying to understand a big gospel like Mark, it's good to outline it. And uh, most commentators will break up uh, Jesus' ministry in Galilee into two sections. So the first section runs from uh, the beginning of the book, chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 3, verse 6. So that's all the previous sermons we've had uh, through, uh, so far. They kind of fall under that heading. And then from our text this morning on through uh, chapter 6, verse 13, is what we might call Jesus' later ministry in Galilee. So we're beginning that second half this morning of Jesus' Galilean ministry. And what this is all uh, intended to set up, of course, is uh, Jesus' eventual journey to Jerusalem to die. Jesus is showing us the way of the Lord. He's showing us that the way of the Lord leads to enthronement, but it is enthronement via death on a cross. So Mark um, has given us many kind of geographic markers, location markers, and he, he has done this for um, a specific reason. That is because we should have associations, prior associations, with various places because, you know, we've all memorized the Old Testament. Jesus starts in the wilderness where John the Baptist is preaching. And then he comes into the coastal regions of Galilee. He's teaching. He's healing people in the synagogues. And this morning, we are going to see Jesus escaping to the sea. And then he is going to ascend up a mountain, So uh, you should be jogging your memories already. You know, what happens on a sea? Is the sea a good place, a happy place, a scary place? What is the sea in terms of uh, the scriptural imagery? And the same thing with the mountain. You know, does anything significant ever happen on mountains, right? Yeah, only the most significant things happen on mountains. So Mark is giving us these markers uh, to connect us with uh, Old Testament history. Now, uh, to remind us of the context here, we saw last week that Jesus has just had a showdown with the Pharisees, and he has argued with them and soundly defeated them in their discussion over Sabbath laws. And naturally, uh, you know, when you can't win an argument with someone, you resort to trying to kill them. And that is what, of course, the Pharisees and the Herodians immediately do. They go off to plot Jesus' destruction on the Sabbath day, right? That there's uh, keeping the Sabbath for you, right? Plotting a murder. So what we have in our text this morning, then, is a Jesus' departure from the synagogue. So he's going to leave the synagogue, and then he's going to travel to two different places, So uh, to kind of outline our text here, uh, in verses 7 to 12, Jesus is going to withdraw or flee to the sea. And there he has a boat that he's going to use basically as kind of a a floating pulpit uh, to keep the crowds from thronging him. And then in verses 13 to 19, he is going to go up onto a mountain to ordain 12 disciples. So from the synagogue to the sea to the mountain, that is uh, the movement here. So starting in verse 7, let's walk through our text together. So verse 7 begins with, "...but Jesus withdrew himself with his disciples to the sea." Uh, The word for withdrew here is the same word that is used to describe David when he withdraws or flees from King Saul. So in 1 Samuel 19.10 it says, "...and Saul sought to smite David even to the wall with the javelin. But he slipped away out of Saul's presence, and he smote the javelin into the wall." And David fled, same uh, Greek word in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Uh, David fled and escaped that night. So like David, uh, Jesus has the current ruling authorities seeking to murder him. And so naturally, he does what David does and flees. In this case, he flees with his disciples to the sea. We've already seen the David-Jesus connection. It's going to just keep coming up all through this uh, gospel. Continuing in verse 7 and through 8, it says, And a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Idumea, and from beyond Jordan, and they about Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, when they had heard what great things he did, came unto him. So here, Mark lists seven uh, regions, seven regions, from which people are flocking to Jesus. Uh, So first you have uh, Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem, which uh, constitute what we might call Israel proper. And then in the south, you have uh, Edomia, or Edom, that's Esau. Uh, To the east, you have the region beyond Jordan, uh, that's just what it's called, and that's the eastern side of the Jordan River. And then up north, there are the coastal cities of Tyre and Sidon in Phoenicia. And all of these places, uh, with the exception of Edomia, are places that Jesus is going to eventually travel to later in this gospel. However, uh, the focus here is really on the vast extent from which people are coming to see this Jesus. Who is this Jesus? It is also likely that this mention of seven regions is meant to call to mind the original conquest of that land under Joshua. So Paul, telling the Old Testament history, says in Acts 13, verse 19, And when God had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he divided their land to them by lot. So the same land that God had once conquered under Joshua and gave to Israel to divide up, Jesus, of course the new Joshua, is reconquering that same land by his ministry. Joshua, of course, conquers with a sword and army. Jesus conquers with his word and his army of disciples. So that is one of the parallels Mark is setting up here. One of the other uh, major uh, major connections is that uh, this is the same thing that happened to David after he fled from Saul. So you got an anointed king. Uh, you have a, a another king, a reigning king, who's going to be eventually uh, removed, and in the meantime, while he's anointed but waiting to be coronated, he's going to be persecuted. So that happens to Jesus, and it happens to David. Um, in 1 Samuel 22, we read this, David therefore departed hence and escaped to the cave Adullam, and when his brethren and all his father's house heard it, they went down hither to him. Uh, so uh, we're setting up here, uh, The few, uh, next week we're going to talk about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and we're going to see uh, Jesus' family coming out to him, thinking, you know, this guy is crazy. So you have uh, this parallel that's being set up by Mark here between David, he's got his brethren, all his father's house, coming out to him, and you're going to have Jesus' family coming out to him next week. Continuing in 1 Samuel 22, verse 2, it says, And everyone that was in distress, and everyone that was in debt, And everyone that was discontented gathered themselves unto David, and he became a captain over them, and there were with him about 400 men. Right? So uh, David, as a king in exile, with Saul seeking to kill him, has a multitude of followers. And uh, this is a great group of, this is basically how you start a church, right? You get people who are in distress, in debt, discontented with their previous church, and they come together to start a new thing, right? Right? Uh, I'm speaking from experience here, but not this church, right? Uh, Yeah, whenever someone tries to start something new, it's going to attract people who are frustrated, people who are discontent, people who don't like the status quo. And there are good things with that. There are bad things with that. So Jesus is experiencing some of this. He's he's the new prophet. He's doing all of these miracles. Everyone wants a piece of Jesus. And he, of course, has far more than 400 people coming out to him. They're coming from the farthest reaches of Israel and even beyond its borders. Now, there are two uh, big questions that hang in the air as we continue through Mark's gospel. And they are these. Number one, who is Jesus? Who is he actually? And then secondly, Are you with him or against him? Who is Jesus, and are you with him or against him? The proclamation of the gospel and the testimony of Jesus' works forces people to take sides. This was true then, and it is still true today. But so far, as we've been reading Mark's gospel, it is really only the demons who seem to know who Jesus is. They're the ones who are saying that he is the Son of God, and they are, of course, set against him. This is part of the irony in Mark's gospel. So among these uh, multitudes who are coming to Jesus, there is still a big question mark over why they are seeking him. And that why matters a lot. Are they traveling all of those miles for mere physical healing or for the novelty of seeing a prophet do a mighty work? Or are they seeking him because he is God in the flesh? the one who has the power to forgive sins. Mark wants us to ask this same question of ourselves, right? Why are we here? Why do you follow Jesus? What are you hoping to get out of all of this? Think, if God were to suddenly appear to you, like he did to Solomon and said, you know, ask what I shall give thee, ask what I shall give thee, what would you say in return? What do you want? If God were to say to you, you know, you have served me well, what reward wilt thou have? What would your response be? Well, the answer that we all want to grow up into being able to say honestly is nothing but you, O Lord. As it says in Psalm 73, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. This is what a real disciple wants. And that is the measure of a Christian. We want God because in him is everything life, joy, love, wisdom, blessedness, satisfaction, resurrection from the dead. As Peter will later say to Jesus, where else can we go? You have the words of life. So what do you want from God? What are you hoping to get from him? Why do these multitudes flock to Jesus? Are their motives really uh, much different from ours? Do they really know who he is? Is. Continuing in verses 9 and 10, it says, And he spake to his disciples that a small ship should wait on him because of the multitude, lest they should throng him. For he had healed many, insomuch that they pressed upon him for to touch him, as many as had plagues. So here, uh, the presenting reason for their seeking of Jesus and trying to touch him is for healing from plagues and various. Diseases. They are still seeking him primarily for his power to heal their bodies. And Jesus is fine with that. He's, he's going to continue uh, to heal them and love them in this way. Continuing in verses 11 and 12, it says, And unclean spirits, when they saw him, fell down before him and cried, saying, Thou art the Son of God. And he straightly charged them that they should not make him known. This is really what the crowds should be doing. Right? If... If God shows up for real, this is the only response. You fall down and you worship him. And so this is, again, the irony that Mark is setting up. Who who recognizes who Jesus is? It's the demons, and yet Jesus says, be quiet. And then the rest of the common people, they're still kind of confused about who he is. We also see here that uh, the Holy Land, the Promised Land, is full of unclean spirits and devils. Every single chapter, I think almost every sermon, it seems like there's some kind of uh, demonic or uh, devil activity going on. Just as uh, King Saul was plagued by an evil spirit, so also the rulers of Jesus' day are harassed by evil spirits. If if you read uh, Josephus, he's a Jewish historian from this time, uh, he tells in uh, really, at times, gruesome detail... What the Herods were like? There are a number of Herods, and you know you can think that Joe Biden is off his rocker or, or crazy or evil or whatever. Uh, but I promise you, Her- the Herods were were far worse, right? Uh, the Herods are really bad. You know we're going to see him eventually uh, cut off the head of John the Baptist. So uh, this is a demonic uh, infested area, and that uh, goes all the way up to the top of the power structure. So Jesus is cleansing the land. He's come to do spiritual warfare. And that means healing the sick and casting out demons. We've already seen him do this on a smaller scale in the first three chapters. And now those waters of cleansing that Jesus carries about in his bosom are growing deeper and flowing farther. The power of the Holy Spirit is cleansing the land as these multitudes come to him. So that's the first section of our text. Jesus on the sea, and now we see him ascend a mountain. Verse 13, and he goeth up into a mountain and calleth unto him whom he would, and they came unto him. So this is the setup for the ordination of the 12 apostles. The location is, of course, significant because it is upon the mountain of God that he often speaks, reveals, and commissions his servants. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 20, so right before uh, the giving of the law, it says this, and the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mount. And the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mount, and Moses went up. So when God is on a mountain, when he is on Mount Sinai, only those whom he calls is allowed to ascend. And if anyone tries to go up, if they try to cross that boundary, they're actually to be put to death. Exodus nineteen twelve says, And thou shalt set bounds unto the people round about, saying, Take heed to yourselves, that ye go not up into the mount, or touch the border of it. Whosoever toucheth the mount shall be surely put to death. So this is a holy mountain, a holy place. So here in verse 13, we have Jesus. We have God on a mountaintop. And it says, He calleth unto him whom he would. He calleth unto himself whom he would. This is the great offense and scandal of God's grace, at least to Americans. God loves some people more than others. God, of course, loves everyone insofar as he created them and gives them their being and even dies for them such that anyone who believes may be saved, 1 John 2.2. But as Jesus says in John 6.44, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. Or, as God says more forcefully in Malachi 1, verse 2, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. God loves everyone, but in different proportions, in different ways, and to different degrees. And this makes Americans lose their mind, right? So while God loves Esau as his good creation, he does not love him with the same covenant-electing love that he has for Jacob. And thus, that lesser love is called hate by comparison. Uh, In a similar sense, Jesus says in Luke 14, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. So God loves some people and some nations more than others. This is really the whole story of the Bible, right? God looks out at a world that is composed exclusively of sinners who deserve damnation. And then he decides to call unto himself whoever he will. Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Paul, etc. And if that rubs us the wrong way, that God chooses some and doesn't choose others, well, all I can say to you is what scripture says. That you have Far too high in estimation of yourself and far too low in estimation of God. What does the Apostle Paul say to those who feel that God is unfair, not democratic, to choose some and not others? He says, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? That's Romans 9, 20 to 21. God is free to love whoever he wants, however he wants. And none of us deserve that love in the slightest. That's why it's called grace. Romans 9, 15 to 16 says, For God saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And why? So then it is not of him that wills, nor of him that runs, but of God that showeth mercy. Salvation is of the Lord. So the calling of the disciples here, like the calling of salvation, is as Mark tells us here in verse 13. Jesus calleth unto him whom he would. There's all sorts of people, probably thousands of people clamoring to follow Jesus. Some want to follow him, but Jesus calls these 12 unto himself. And what is their response to this call? It says, and they came unto him, right? They obey. In verses 14 to 15, we are then given the purpose for which Jesus ordains these disciples. It says, and he ordained 12. And then here's our reasons, that they should be with him and that he might send them forth to preach and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out devils. Of these four purposes for which Jesus ordains the 12, and that's what Mark will call them really for the rest of the gospel, the 12, it is not surprising that they are ordained to preach and heal and cast out demons, right? This is something we have come to expect because that's what Jesus is doing. But notice what the very first purpose is for which Jesus ordains them. It's that they should be with him, that they should be with him. The school of discipleship is first and foremost to simply be with Jesus. These 12 men are going to travel with Jesus, go on road trips with Jesus, eat with Jesus, talk to Jesus, ask Jesus questions along the way, follow Jesus wherever he goes. And by spending all of that uh, what we might call quantity time and quality time together with him, they are going to be equipped So that three chapters from now, Jesus can send them out two by two to preach the gospel. The training for ministry is to spend time with Jesus. And when you spend time with Jesus, it will be evident to other people. It says in Acts 4.12, when they're uh, preaching, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled, and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Jesus Jesus is the one who turns fishermen and tax collectors into preachers and writers of divine things. Their uh, Greek might not be that uh, polished, it may read somewhat crudely, but as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, My speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the very power of God. The power of God and the demonstration of the Spirit comes to these apostles by being with Jesus. And although none of us are able to physically follow Jesus around Galilee today, what we do have are these four gospel accounts. We have his word. And these allow us to truly encounter the real Jesus, the living Jesus. And when we hear his word, his gospel by faith in the spirit, we also are spending time with him. That is what we are doing right now. He is here with us. Finally, in verses 16 to 19, we have the listing of the 12 apostles. It says, And Simon, he surnamed Peter. And James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, and he surnamed them Boanerges, which is the sons of thunder. And Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Canaanite, or Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, which also betrayed him. Of these twelve names, we are told uh, basically nothing about seven of them. And with the exception of Judas and the first four disciples, uh, none of these names will come up again in Mark's gospel. What little we are told here is that Simon is renamed Peter, which of course we know means rock. And this will come uh, to characterize him as at times being a a stone of stumbling that needs to be rebuked, you know, get behind me, Satan. But eventually he will become a firm foundation upon which the church can be built. James and John, we see here, are surnamed sons of thunder. And this also likely has a sort of double meaning. At times, they will be overzealous. They will seek honor for themselves to sit at Jesus' left hand and right hand. They will try to call down fire from heaven upon uh, people who reject the gospel. But after Pentecost, we see James and John mature. James will actually be the first apostle who is martyred. We see that in Acts 12. And, of course, we know John. John will thunder the love of God in his gospel, in his epistles, and in the apocalypse. Mark's focus, however, is not to give us a biographical sketch of the disciples, as interesting as that might be. Mark's focus is that Jesus is reconstituting the nation. He is reconstituting the 12 tribes of Israel in these 12 men. Just as God gathered the 12 tribes around Sinai and later around the tabernacle, so Jesus gathers 12 men around himself. Jesus, of course, is the mountain of God. Jesus is the tabernacle. He is the center of the world. And these 12 apostles are the beginning of a new Israel, and, he, and they are the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the first Israel. When John, uh, John the, the, uh, the Apostle, when John the Apostle sees the new Jerusalem in Revelation 21, it says, and the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and in them the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So Jesus, in calling the 12, is starting to build that heavenly city. It's a concrete pour that is uh, starting to happen. And that building project upon that apostolic foundation continues on to the present day. And so as we celebrate our two-year anniversary as a church, let us remember the blood that was spilled so that we could be called to the top of the mountain. Let us remember the special love that God has shown unto us by calling us elect in Christ. And may we grow to be able to say with the psalmist that there is nothing on earth, that I desire besides you, O Lord. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. Your faithfulness to uh, the patriarchs, to the apostles, to the prophets. Your faithfulness to us, all our lives, and especially over the last two years, uh, to gather uh, this group of saints, to gather uh, these people to, to worship you. And God, we ask... That for many years to come, you would cause your word to spread in this region. That one day, Lewis County, Centralia, Chehalis, this whole region would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God, start in the church where judgment begins. Bring reformation to the doctrine, to the worship, to the practices in the church. God, bring reformation to our families. Help us as fathers and mothers to take heed to your word and to raise children who walk in the fear of the Lord. And God, grant that this would be a testimony and a witness to the world around us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In Psalm 15, David asks the question, Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? He then goes on to give the password for entrance into God's dwelling place. If you want to ascend the mountain to dine with God, you must walk uprightly, work righteousness, speak the truth in your heart, and fear the Lord. The psalm ends with a promise that he who does these things shall never be moved. Living faith is what allows us to ascend the heights. Faith is what causes us to transcend the limitations of our bodily senses and ascend to the truth, which is immaterial and spiritual. Here in this meal, we have bread and wine. And when we partake of these earthly elements by faith, we taste and see that the Lord, he is good. So come and ascend to the hill of the Lord. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. The charge is this. Let us feast. Let us Rejoice together, and as we do, testify, tell the stories of how God has been faithful to you. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling, and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever, and amen. Amen. Go in peace.